When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. He's one of our favorite. This officially makes him the most presented guest in the history of Herd Tell. Congratulations, Dr. Michael Siegel. How are you, sir? I'm good today. How are you? I'm fantastic. How's life on Hoth? For those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can see his lovely, usually sci-fi themed backgrounds today has taken us to the setting of The Empire Strikes Back and the ice planet Hoth. But I I do have a a very warm winter coat that my brother sent me because he was afraid my tauntaun would freeze before I got to the first (laughs) pecker. Well, just remember, if you got to cut it open for for warmth, it's the smell that gets you more than the cold. Um, In other news, though, you have been doing what you've been doing for a while for us at Ordinary-Times.com. You have been doing the yeoman's laboring work of trying to explain the science side of the COVID pandemic to people like me who need it explained to us like we're five years old. Um, you're taking on another one of those conspiracy theory tropes, memes, and uh, as you called it, cyclical thinking, not circular thinking, cyclical thinking, because this same thing keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, natural immunity. Before we dive into it, though, let's get the nomenclature right. So, Professor... Uh, educate us. Natural immunity is absolutely a real thing, but what should the term mean to us? So what natural immunity uh, means, or you can call it what I call it infection-based immunity, is when you have had a disease and that gives you a resistance to it. It's not necessarily 100%. So, and that is natural immunity is what we had before we had vaccines. You get measles and you'd have immunity and you never get it again. Um, The reason we invented vaccines was because in order to acquire that immunity, you have to get the disease. And some of these diseases can be very bad. So um, with COVID, people who have had the COVID infection have some uh, immune-based resistance to it. And one of the debates has been uh, about how that compares to vaccine-based immunity. Uh, The science on this has gone back and forth a little bit. But it seems to be converging on the idea that for the original strain of COVID, vaccine-based immunity was a little better because it was very specifically targeted at the spike protein. For the Delta variant, um, the vaccine immunity is still pretty good. Um, It's about 80% effective in preventing infection and over 90% effective in reducing hospitalization and death. But actually, natural immunity or infection-based immunity seems to have an advantage there, that that seems to be more like 95%. Now, we don't know yet what the deal is with Omicron. Omicron, we know, does evade immunity, uh, however acquired. The exact numbers we don't know yet because it's only been around for a few weeks, so we should know that at some point. Of course, almost everyone will have had Omicron by then, so it won't matter. But um, 
the better effectiveness of natural immunity to prevent infection has been seen by some as people saying, well, natural immunity is better than a vaccine-based immunity. But you know, a friend of one of the people I who follows me on Twitter pointed this out. If your chance of getting infected if you had the vaccine is 20%, and your chance of getting the infected if you've had it before is 5%, your actual chance of getting COVID is 105% because you had it the first time. And so acquiring the vaccine immunity means you're exposed to what we now know to be very low risks from those vaccines. Whereas acquiring natural immunity means the very high risk of COVID itself. And you had a wonderful guest on a few uh, last week talking about long COVID and things like that. We now have evidence that the vaccines do reduce the incidence of long COVID quite significantly. Why are we having such trouble, what you just laid out, that natural immunity and the vaccine, extrapolate this out a little bit, and I'm assuming probably the therapeutics and treatments, this is true too, that we aren't dealing with just one kind of virus here. You just laid out three different kinds and the natural immunity is different for each. The vaccine reacts differently. I'm assuming the therapeutics probably react differently to each. Uh, and they also, we have the data now, they're also affecting different uh, age groups differently and different people groups differently. Why are we having such a hard time just saying natural immunity works for these people, but it won't work for these people. The, vi the vaccine works in this case more than this case. And these are all degrees. Everybody just wants to lump this stuff all together and just buzzword it. And I think that's where a lot of the trouble's coming from here, isn't it? I think so. The, it's, it's also that people want to choose sides. I mean, to be fair, for the people pushing vaccines, one of the things I've been saying for a while is we should consider a prior infection to be the equivalent of a vaccination. That if you've had it in uh, COVID before and you get uh, the vaccine, that's, that's effectively being boosted. In fact, that's one of the reasons we thought that the boosters would work because we saw the best immunity we were seeing was people who'd had COVID, then got the vaccine. They had the best resistance to the, to the virus. And so the, I, I think we have a tendency, and especially when things get politicized, to think of this as either or. And I think that you know, if you've had COVID, you, know, you don't, don't want to get COVID, obviously. I mean, you had it last week, and even with the vaccination, it was pretty tough. You don't want to get COVID, but if you had it, that does create a resistance. But a vaccine is a way to get to the same place to effectively, I mean, the difference between how well a prior infection protects you against COVID and how well a vaccine protects you against COVID are relatively small, but the vaccine, you don't get sick in the first place. You get, you get a couple of days where you're feeling kind of crappy and then, and then you're better. I think another thing that happened here, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, I, I, I started calling this the stand effect. If you remember the Stephen King book, The Stand, and they've made a couple uh, not so great movie adaptations of it, in my opinion. The book is excellent. It's probably a seminal work. But in The Stand, I think people hear natural immunity and they start thinking about the stand where the world is wiped out by a super flu. But these small group of people are just naturally immune to the super flu. They didn't get it at all. I think there's some just thinking among people where they just think natural immunity means you're not going to get any disease at all. And there isn't any scientific evidence of that that we know of, although there probably are some people like that that won't get it no matter what, for whatever reason. Yeah. A few weeks ago, you talked about uh, Peter McCulloch, who was on the, you know, has been on the Joe Rogan show and other places. And one of the things he's been saying is that natural immunity is hundred percent. Once you've gotten COVID, you won't get it again, but we know that's not true. We've, we've been able to look at people's antibodies. We've been able to measure their, their, the amount of antibodies in their blood. We can see that people can get 
coronavirus two or three times. And so it's not like measles where you get it once and that's done or chicken pox where you get it once and that's mostly done unless you get shingles, which I did a few years ago. It was very painful. It's not like smallpox where you get it once and it's done. This is much more like the flu or a common cold where you have some resistance for a while and that resistance fades. It doesn't go away completely. Your body has multiple lines of defense. And while some of those lines of defense lose their effectiveness as the virus evolves and as your immunity fades, others retain that resistance. That's why uh, that's the biggest reason why Omicron hasn't been as bad. It's still been pretty bad, but it's been better because we have a lot of people who've been vaccinated, a lot of people who've had prior infections. And so they, even though their antibodies don't recognize Omicron right away, their body has other layers of defense that eventually recognize it and can rally to their defense. Yeah. And we're talking to Michael Siegel, our scientist friend who helps make the complicated nice and easy for the rest of us to understand. Um, Now, I'm no anti-vaxxer at all. I've actually had the vaccines for this disease. My whole household has as well. But even with that and even understanding the sun, let's just play devil's advocate for a second. I do think it's a fair question to ask when we start talking about, you know, fourth, fifth, whatever number of boosters we're going to get to. Those are fair questions to ask is how many times are we going to do boosters? I think it's a fair question to ask how young is too young to vaccinate a child with. And even though we have good data because of the technology, still a new and mostly experimental series of vaccines. How can we address those concerns, which are legitimate scientific and questions for us as consumers without falling down the rabbit hole of being anti-vaccine? I, I think they, we have to think of them in terms of cost benefit. Right now, they've been trying fourth shots. They're not actually showing very much efficacy, which uh, isn't very surprising. Um, they are talking about uh, tweaking the vaccine to make it more effective against Omicron or hopefully to make a universal vaccine. I think this will will probably settle down to where this would be a yearly thing like the flu vaccine or something like that, or maybe every other year, depending on how the virus evolves. So I, I do think those are legitimate questions to say, you know, and we've talked about this before, what is the end game here? You know, not, I mean, the pandemic, the virus may never go away, it may become endemic, but where do we get to the point where we're stable? And I think that the idea where we have, you know, maybe a yearly vaccination where we continue to tweak it, hopefully improve it so that it can be every other year, every three years, something like that. I think that's where we should be thinking about headed. Um, But right now, one of the things about the pandemic is we have to respond to these things in real time. And we don't get the luxury of, you know, looking back and, 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 uh, and taking, uh, taking the time to get the right answer is perfect. So, uh, so I think those are legitimate questions. And I think a lot of scientists are asking those questions. I mean, especially with the emergence of Omicron, that has really changed the game quite a bit because it's, it's so much more infectious, but is, does appear to be less lethal. And so that has changed the calculus of when certain interventions are justified when they're not. Unfair question, but is uh, the COVID strands that we're dealing with, is it ever just going to be part of the flu shot, uh, quote unquote, and I know it's not specific to the flu shot, but just people don't realize the flu shot is actually a, you know, it's a concoction of things for various strains of flu. They pick which one they're going to release each year. They're kind of guessing, educated guess, obviously, but they're guessing which strand is going to be the worst. Is it going to be that type of a situation year to year, do you think? I think so. Um, and 
this is speculation, and there are people who know way more about this than I do. But from the very beginning, they've been they've been speculating that this would become like a, a yearly thing. Um, coronaviruses do change; they do evolve. We've, we've known that for a long time. The flu does that, and so it may become a thing where we have to guess. But even in years where we get the flu guess wrong, it still does confer resistance. It still makes it so that you're less likely to go to the hospital and less likely to die. A few years ago, they got the flu concoction wrong. Um, they guessed wrong and we got a very different strain of flu, but people who'd had the vaccine and I was one of them who got the vaccine and then later got the flu got way less sick than people who hadn't gotten the vaccine. So that's one of the things that we are learning here that these vaccines, you know, the vaccine we have now was designed for the original wild type COVID, the one that broke out in Wuhan. It has now dealt with two very different variants, Delta and Omicron, and dealt with them reasonably well. And so I think that gives us hope that we can continue to keep this thing in check with future versions of the vaccine. And there was just an announcement from the, uh, I think it was the, from UCM RID or one of the military facilities that they have a very early version of what they call a universal coronavirus vaccine, which would be able to not only deal with this particular one, but with the other coronaviruses that are always circulating. Yeah, talking to Michael Siegel. Uh, when we come back, uh, he's actually written not just about some of these conspiracy theories, but actually how people get to those conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about that. His latest piece in Ordinary-Times.com. Continue to talk about COVID, natural immunity, and all kinds of scientific knowledge with our buddy Michael. Her tale continues right after this. Oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, buddy. You are back in the pages of Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, you are one of our frequent contributors on matters of science and technology, but uh, you do something that I don't like, which is math. Uh, you use a lot of math and a lot of numbers, and you put them in these weird equation things to try to explain some of these conspiracy theories. Um, I'm being a little facetious here, but some of the most well-known and well-used conspiracy theories involving COVID right now really just comes down to people, and maybe not even in bad faith, maybe they really believe it, but it's just some bad math and bad equations, isn't it? Yeah, and the what we were talking about with natural immunity, that's what kicked off today's uh, post, that people were posting that natural immunity is six times as effective as the vaccine. Well, the natural immunity is not 480% for effective. What they've done is they've taken some numbers out of context that, you know, the vaccine makes you five times less likely to catch the disease. Uh, infection-based immunity makes it 20 times less likely for you to catch the disease. Therefore, the infection-based immunity is four times better, but that's not how it works. It's 80% versus 95%. And so some people are saying that in bad faith. Some people are just, you know, sometimes these things come out in the press and they're just not very clear with the way they're stating them. And so uh, that's one of the things I try to do is to, to clarify what, what the numbers are actually saying, because numbers can lie to you in it with a straight face in a way that people can't. Yeah, I think Vince Scully paraphrased and he talked about stats being uh, a lamppost that can illuminate or but most of the time it's just holding a drunk up. Um, <laughs> you talk about uh, in your piece at Ordinary-Times.com, uh, you get deep into the numbers, but it's really a study at the heart of this. Before we talk about the specific study, though, is 
have we gotten a better understanding over the last two years? You're a scientist, so you come from the world where everything is papers and studies and research, and you do a paper, and then you do the, the rebuttal paper, and you discuss that, you know, doing a, re, a paper like that is a very research academic type thing. Those don't always translate to the general public. So they just see, oh, scientific survey, this must be accurate because it's scientific and it comes from this big institution with a big word and there's 30 people on the masthead who wrote it. That's not how these things really work, though, is it? I'm sort of that you we are always sort of dancing around the truth that you get a paper, it makes a claim, other people study it and so forth. And especially when you're dealing with, I mean, I deal with astrophysics. So, you know, the stars don't lie to you or, you know, don't tell you they weren't eating junk food and stuff like that. Whereas with, when you're trying to study health, it's much more complicated. There are many variables. We don't really understand a lot of how the human body works. Um, we, you know, COVID is a perfect example. There are many complicating factors. Diabetes makes it more likely that you're going to get seriously ill. Having previous uh, problems with breathing makes it more difficult. Age makes it more difficult. And so it's very difficult to tease these things out. And sometimes people do their research wrong, that happens. Sometimes there was a very unfortunate incident early on where someone did a fraudulent study that got a lot of press. Um, but sometimes you just get unlucky. Sometimes the people you have study just happened for one reason or another to be particularly unhealthy or particularly healthy, or just the numbers just rolled the way they did. You know, you can imagine, you know, when people do political polls, sometimes they show the candidates jumping all over in popularity and they're not really, you just got a different sample. So that's why we replicate results. That's why we do multiple studies. That's why we do meta studies. That's why you want to take all the data and combine it. So when I talk about the difference between, say, infection-based immunity and vaccine-based immunity, I try to sort of summarize what other all the studies are sort of converging on, not pick one study in particular. Talking to Michael Siegel, talking a little COVID and uh, natural immunities. Uh, he's been our go-to guy on this for a while for a lot of reasons. Uh, Michael, one of the things you do point out here to uh, kind of give the natural immunity crowd a little bit of credit here, though, is you do, after you look at the data, think it would be appropriate to consider a infection of COVID as somewhat equivalent to having an immunization dose. As in, you still may need a booster, you still may need to take precautions, you still may need to do other things, but that would be an appropriate way to look at this. Yeah, and I, there are people who would disagree with me on that, who would say that uh, we don't know enough, you know, that they should still get vaccinated, et cetera. And we don't think vaccination is going to hurt people. So uh, that's why they tend to emphasize that. But uh, I do think that is, even if it's not scientifically necessarily a middle ground, I think politically it might be a little middle ground that I, I borrowed your phrase of turning down the noise, that if we can get to a point where someone says, look, I've had COVID, do I really need the vaccine? And we can either say, all right, you're good, or yes, you need the vaccine. Here's why we think that the vaccine will help you resist future infections. I think that would be a much better approach than having this sort of either or where it's only vaccines or only natural immunity. And we see that these are two sides of the same coin. I've asked you this before, but I, I want to bring it up here because you just touched on it. Um, the, the breakdown in communication between the scientific academic community, between the general public and between um, public leaders, political and bureaucratic, even medical ones. 
do you see any evidence that that's getting better? Because it seems like we're going to have the, the disease is going to go endemic and pass us by before we figure out how to talk about it. Or do you see more hope or do you see it that way that we've really blown an opportunity to fix how we communicate with each other on scientific matters like this? I keep coming back to the fact that the vast majority of people who are eligible for the vaccine have taken it. That, that to me, that speaks to me much louder than talking heads on the radio or guys on Twitter, no matter how many likes they get, that hundreds of millions of Americans rolled up their arms and took a vaccine. That to me speaks much more to what they're thinking and who they're listening to than anything else. Talking to Michael Siegel, our uh, scientific buddy, he always brings us good knowledge on these sorts of things. Uh, You brought it up earlier, so I'll just ask the question again. Uh, You have so much noise out there. You talked about turning down the noise. That's what we like to do on this program. You have really big platforms who uh, will put out people that are questionable and material. I'm a free speech guy, so I don't have a problem with them doing that. If you don't like it, don't listen to it and or get involved and push back. Uh, I got a platform. Call me. I'll put your piece out there pushing back on it. But what should people do to get good scientific information on this stuff? Because you do have uh, the Joe Rogans who I bad faith, I think, is too harsh for him, but he does do the free thinking thing to the point of being unmoored and just going with whatever. Um, then you have the really bad faith actors that you've written before that are out there purposely pushing bad information, a media and a scientific community where frankly, the public just doesn't know who to trust. Where do they start? Where do they dig in trying to get that good information besides just talking to people like you who spend a lot of time trying to make sure they got it right? To me, the people, the voices I most trust are the ones who are clear about what we don't know about what we're still learning, that this is what we think now, it may change in the future. And at some point go back and say, all right, this is what we get wrong. So yeah, I've talked about uh, Dr. Ellie Murray. She's on on Twitter. Uh, She's a great voice. Um, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, another one. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, former FDA head, I think. He's been a really great voice of of moderation, of not getting too much panic, but being serious about the challenges we face. And when you listen to someone talking about the science, it's one of those things that's sort of counterintuitive because when we hear someone go out and say, if you've caught COVID, you'll never catch it again. That sounds definitive. That sounds like someone who knows what they're talking about. Whereas when someone comes out and says, well, this is what we think, but with these caveats and we have to study it more to us, that tends to sound a little bit wishy-washy, but it's the latter person you should be listening to. The person who has the doubts, the person who goes back and sees what we got wrong. And when I, the voices I find most useful, not just on COVID, but on any scientific issue at all, are those who are cognizant of what our limitations are, what we don't know, what we're still trying to learn, what we got wrong. Yeah, Michael Siegel. I That's something I do with politics and culture and policy, too, is I, I want the people that will admit they say wrong. I, I haven't done it in a while, but I used to do a column every now and then. I just go back and review the last six, seven months or whatever I'd said. And like, yeah, I got this right. I got this wrong. We may have to put that as a hurt tell feature. But I, I think, and I've said this on the program, and I know you agree with me on this, I think probably a whole lot of humility at the beginning would have solved a whole lot of the problems that we're having in the end game now, wouldn't it? I, I think so. I think there was a little too much certainty. You know, there, I mean, there is stuff we got wrong. We, we were wrong about that masks didn't help. We were wrong about, you know, sanitizing everything and constantly washing your hands. I mean, understandable errors. We had very limited data at that time. Um, it now, there. I think there are a lot more people agreeing that closing the schools last year was a mistake. Um, it was an understandable mistake. You have kids, I have kids, we both know 
that they bring home everything. And um, so there was an understandable concern that kids would be bringing home COVID, but it's turned out that improving ventilation, having the mask, spending as much time outside, that kept the, the spread under control. So uh, I think that going to the public and saying, these are our best guesses and we may get stuff wrong, but this is, we're trying to do our best here is a, is a much better approach. And I think one that the public is generally receptive to as attested by how many people are taking the vaccines, how many people wore masks, how many people socially isolated. I mean, a lot of people went to great efforts to try to bend the curve and for the most part successfully. I mean, we now have a less deadly variant. We have vaccines, we have therapeutics. We are, the steps we've taken as clumsy as they were have saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. And that is a tribute, not as much to the scientists, but to the American public who were willing to listen and uh, do what was asked of them, even though some of it turned out to be too much. I, it, it did. It did help in the end. Yeah, we got to leave it there, my friend. Uh, could talk to you all day. We'll definitely have you back on. He's becoming a regular. Uh, we will get you some kind of a nice plaque and or uh, cheaply printed out dot matrix banner for being the most appeared guest on the show. Congratulations. Let folks know. Uh, I'll talk about those. Oh, NFT. We need to do an NFT. Maybe we do a beard and non-beard NFT and one's valuable and one's not. Um, (laughs) Let folks know where they can find you and follow you. Ordinary times, of course, and other places, my friend. Uh, You can go to ordinary times. That has a link to uh, my Twitter profile where I have links to my video channel where I talk about movies and science and uh, my novel and other things. So, uh, be sure to ordinary times is great. There's just lots of great stuff there. So you you won't regret it. Uh, Michael Siegel. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.